1: Are these, as you heard in the headlines, in County Cork, are treating as suspicious the death of a woman whose body has been found in a remote area near Skull?
2: All I heard was that a woman had been found murdered in Tormore. But did they say murdered, Kerry? Yes. Because I, I can Did they say murdered? Yes.
3: Yes, I they thought, did. You know, I was under the But this dead. was not
2: the earlier. It was found dead. But by the time I heard it in the afternoon, they discovered it was a murder. And then I went into the coffee shop in the courtyard and Fanula there told me that it was a French woman. I think there was no other way of interpreting a single woman being found with head injuries in the middle of the night or, you know, first thing in the morning in a very isolated part of West Cork. It was apparent to everybody who heard that that something horrible had taken place that night.
4: This is West Cork, an Audible original series. I'm Jennifer Ford... I'm Sam Bungie, and
1: this is Episode 2, The Back of Beyond.
4: Locals refer to the place where the body was found as the Back of Beyond, even though it's just a few miles out of town. Like a lot of the more remote houses, the victim's home doesn't have a street name or a house number. Instead, people refer to townlands... Some townlands are so small they only cover a couple of houses, and they're not always on maps. They're old Irish geographical divisions that predate the Norman invasion in the 1100s, and have somehow survived despite the cropping up of counties and boroughs and towns. We knew we were looking for a remote area of Tormor called Drinan, but Drinan is so small that if you ask somebody for directions, they know you're looking for the murdered woman's house. We'd heard that locals purposefully give vague directions to ghoulish tourists asking the way to Drinan. We needed someone to help us. The local reporter who covered the case offered to take us out there.
3: Now you can see it's pretty isolated. Yeah, now my, my, my thinking always was you would never stumble across this place in a, in, in a month of Sundays. It seems pretty clear to me that the only way you would finish up or could finish up up here is if you knew knew the terrain and you knew the place.
4: Ian Bailey had been a Fleet Street reporter in the UK, but in West Cork, the closest he got to hard news was covering the opening of the first internet cafe, or the local Muscles Festival. The road sort of bends and winds around. Ian navigated from the passenger seat. The drive is coastal and winding and then turns up into the hills where there's nothing but briars and rocks. So you,
3: you can see, I mean, this is way out this isn't in, in, in a wilderness right I turn I, I, I won't go any further
1: in? Oh,
3: oh. uh, n- yeah so that's uh, the house that was occupied that that was her house um, anyway I'm just showing you this so we don't want to be hanging around here
4: We were on a dead-end country lane with tufts of grass growing up along it. Up ahead, the lane carries on for 100 meters or so towards a gateway and then a bend to the right. Then winds up a hillside spotted with three houses. Off to the far right, there's a house nestled behind some trees. To the left, a small cottage. And just in front of it, halfway up the hill and closest to the lane, the victim's house. It's a two-story white farmhouse with a pitched black slate roof and a small porch overlooking rolling farmland down to the Atlantic Ocean. To anyone approaching on this lane that bright December morning in 1996, there would have been nothing that hinted at the horror that lay just around the bend.
5: If you saw the damage that was done to that poor lady and you saw the way her face was destroyed and so on, you would have to come to a conclusion, even if you were never a policeman, that this murder was carried out by somebody that lost, lost it completely.
4: Dermot Dwyer is a retired detective who worked on the case. He was a senior detective in the city and was called down on the second day to assist the West Court Guards.
5: I've been at the scene of a lot of murders, and so have my colleagues. But some of them are, you know, there's cruelty in them, and there's viciousness. And uh, she was very badly, it was quite obvious her face had been very badly battered, and she was, and it looked dreadful, to be honest with you.
4: Her face was bludgeoned, her hands were gashed, and her fingers were broken. There was blood through her hair and on her white nightclothes. More pooled around her head. Her pyjama top was pushed up to her chest. Her pyjama pants were torn at the waist and the elastic waistband still caught on the barbed wire fence. Even though she was in nightclothes, she was wearing laced-up boots. A large, flat piece of slate was next to the body and nearby, on top of a dark blue bathrobe, a big concrete block. Weighing more than 40 pounds... Both the slate and concrete block were covered in blood.
1: Ireland has one police force for the whole country. It's called Angada Síochána, which means guardians of the peace in Irish. People say guards for short. The local guards down in Skull are part of the same force as the city guards and guards higher up the ranks who join the investigation in the days and weeks to come. The idea was that they'd all work together – The 999 emergency call came in at 10 past 10 a.m. At 10.40, two local guards arrived at the scene. They drove to the end of the lane, where they found a white station wagon with the driver's door wide open. Behind it was the body of a small blonde woman, maybe in their 30s they thought, lying face up in the ditch. Neither of them recognised the woman, but they recognised the car. It belonged to Shirley Foster and Alfie Lyons, who lived next door. The guards decided that one of them should stay with the body and the other should go up and speak to them. Shirley and Alfie are a retired couple in their 60s at the time. She's English and had been a schoolteacher. He's from Dublin and was a restaurant owner. When you think about them picking a place as remote as this and calling it home, it's kind of ridiculous that they ended up with an international homicide investigation on their doorstep. So it made sense that they didn't want to go on tape. In fact, they didn't really want to talk to us, out of respect for the victim and her family, they said. But they were very nice about not wanting to talk. And in being very nice about not wanting to talk, they talked to us a little bit. They told us some stuff about that day, which we'll come back to. But sticking with that morning, it was Shirley who found her. She'd been setting off for Skull to do some Christmas shopping and to take some things to the town dump when she saw something down by the end of the driveway at the gate. It took her a moment to figure out what she was looking at. In fact, her first thought was it was a life-sized doll. She was through the open gate and past the body before it registered, and she skidded to a stop. She leant on the horn and screamed for Alfie. Then she ran through the field to their house, where Alfie called 999. The two other houses on the hill were holiday houses. They knew the house on the far right belonged to an English family who were in London, but the house closest to them, about 50 metres down the lane, belonged to a French woman they knew as Sophie Buñol. They didn't know Sophie well. She only visited a few times a year and generally kept to herself. But there was a silver car in her driveway and Alfie thought he'd seen her through the window over the weekend. His first thought was to warn the Frenchwoman not to go outside. So he ran down the drive and banged on her door, but got no answer. That day Shirley and Alfie had been too upset to look at the body and the local guard didn't insist. But he used their phone to call for backup.
4: We're just going to stop here for a moment to talk about what did or didn't happen at the crime scene that day. Because the truth is, we don't really know. Certainly not in as much detail as we'd like. One of the first explanations you'll hear about why the case has never been solved is that the guards messed up that first day. That it took the experts too long to get there. And that in the meantime, the local guards made mistakes that were impossible to take back. That through sloppiness or inexperience, they destroyed whatever evidence there might have been. None of the local guards we tried wanted to talk. But we did speak to James Donovan. He was in charge of forensics back then. In fact, Donovan introduced forensic science to Ireland in the 1970s. His department was responsible for testing evidence gathered at this scene. He told us what should have happened that day.
6: Well, the first thing you do is do nothing, protect the scene. Now, that sounds simple, and yet it is the most difficult thing because guards want to put their heads in and see what's going on.
4: Forensic scientists have a sort of unofficial motto. Every contact leaves a trace, which is good because it cuts both ways. They can find a detailed story in a well-preserved scene, but not if someone tramples all over it before they get there.
6: The last thing you want is any more evidence being added to a scene until it is properly examined. You don't leave f- fingerprints where there are no fingerprints, or you don't take fingerprints off.
4: The classic thing... that all To show us, Donovan takes out a hanky and picks up his mug to inspect it, the way detectives do on TV. was
6: the horror of seeing somebody get a, t- a tissue out of their pocket and lift the object and have a look at it. And of course, the fingerprint under the lift is gone.
4: Donovan's expertise was so specialised that criminals were constantly trying to rub him out. He survived multiple assassination attempts. A notorious Irish gangster called the General put a bomb in the exhaust of Donovan's car. The explosion took off part of Donovan's lower right leg and most of his left foot. His injuries made it hard for him to stand around in the lab all day, so eventually he just took early retirement. When we visited him at his home in Dublin, it was strange to imagine that this slight man, in his 70s, moving slowly and purposefully around his kitchen, making tea and fishing out the Cadbury's snack bars, had been such a powerful enemy of Ireland's criminal underworld. But then he starts talking about forensics. And you think to yourself, if I'd just fled a crime scene, I wouldn't want Donovan anywhere near it.
6: You're looking for things that almost are beyond viewing. You can't really say at the first glance that that is relevant, that that's not relevant. That's a very dangerous thing to do. you don't know what's going to emerge in time.
4: Someone who worked in Donovan's lab explained it this way. In a murder, you know you were the one speaking for the victim when gathering evidence. They can't tell you where to look, so you are acting on their behalf.
6: You have to do almost a, a mental scenario of what might have happened, of the potentials of what might have happened. How did the body, if you can associate with the house, how did the body get from the house to, the, to there? Why if she's bloodied there, was she actually bludgeoned there? Was she damaged somewhere else and has run there or being dragged there? Or is there some other area, certainly between the house and there? Uh, you could imagine a chase. Was there a chase? Was there uh, blows struck that generated blood? Um, were, her, were her clothes disarranged? Was there attempted at sex? What is the evidence to be built up and... Uh, layer upon layer.
4: Yeah, and then we know that the weather, it was a clear day, right?
1: No, they yeah, that, well, it was a Moulin
4: night. Ago. Donovan's forensics team rarely went out to crime scenes and didn't go to West Cork that day. The scenes of crime team were responsible for collecting evidence. A call went out for them at around lunchtime, but they were based in Dublin, 225 miles away.
1: We can tell you who did get to the scene that day, Father Cashman, the parish priest, he came to administer the last rites. There was some conversation about whether or not he should anoint the body, but they decided no, the holy oils might contaminate the scene.
4: Pat Joy, a local detective who'd done a course on crime scene preservation, he brought along his camera and began taking photos.
1: The local doctor arrived, but it wasn't his job to give anything like a time or cause of death. He could only make official what everyone already knew. This woman was dead.
4: A farmer who kept cattle down that way, he knew Sophie. And at 12.35pm, he ID'd her body for the guards. The body had been out on the road for two and a half hours since Shirley found it. Police instructions were to leave the body until the pathologist got there.
1: But Ireland only had one state pathologist, Dr John Harbison. A call had gone out for him, but he was based in Dublin too and it was his birthday that day, so he was out of the office. No one had any idea when he might arrive. They hoped he'd be there soon enough to be able to determine the time of death, and that the Scenes of Crime team would arrive before time and weather destroyed the scene. A local guard was sent to a hardware store in Skull to buy a plastic sheet to protect the body. They put up a warning triangle at the end of the lane, but still, the prints piled up.
4: In the meantime, there was another ticking clock on the killer's whereabouts.
6: There are certain things that would need to be done fairly quickly. And one of the things would be, are the wounds such that whoever killed her would be sprayed with blood? So, therefore, you're looking for somebody with bloody clothes.
4: And it sounds like when it came to speaking to people locally, the guards did move quickly and covered a lot of ground in those first hours. Detective Dwyer says the guards had a set list of questions to run through with everyone
5: you can get a very good picture of what was moving and what wasn't moving. And it works particularly well in a country place because uh, everyone knows one another and where they're coming from and all that. It's basically, it's the oxygen that drives a modern investigation.
4: They wanted to find out who this woman was, who in the area knew her, and they quickly established that not many did. They found out that she used to visit a couple who lived out at Three Castle Head where she'd been walking the previous day, so they headed out in that direction. They learnt that Sophie used to like going to O'Sullivan's pub in Crookhaven, and they found out that another local couple, Leo and Sally Bulger, kept horses on land by her house and came out regularly to feed them. Leo says that Sophie's neighbour, Alfie Lyons, had called them that day to tell them what was going on. I remember my first actual thought was that that was something that came from France. I didn't believe that that was, you know, something that was instigated here or, I don't know, I don't know why that was. Certainly not the life here, you know.
1: That's an area you know, so and you know like what happens down there.
4: Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Nothing happens down there, you know. Uh, People can hardly even find the place, it's so remote. So, and I guess maybe that's why I, I just thought it was something that came with her or followed her or something like that because, you know, the idea that, Somebody of any local would end up down there. I and mean, you, you couldn't even imagine a situation that would bring that
1: about, you know. Local guards were hoping for the specialist teams from Dublin. Instead, they were getting journalists and curious neighbours. We spoke to one of them.
2: We heard on the radio uh, just before Christmas that this terrible event had taken place
1: very close to where we lived. She was a student at the time, home for the holidays. She didn't want us to use her real name, she was worried, as a lot of people were, about sticking her head above the parapet on this. But she said she'd tell us about her December 23rd, when she and her family decided to go and check out the scene for themselves. There was a house up there owned by some friends of theirs who were away, so they told themselves they should go and check that the house was secure. But clearly it was just a ruse, desperate to see what was going on. <laughs> so nosy,
2: in typically Irish fashion. So off we all went, piled into the car and drove. And we were astonished that we just kept going. We kept, you know, we drove up the little road and we nobody was stopping us. And I kept thinking, surely this can't be possible. We can't still be going. We're going to be turned back. But anyway, the thrill built upon thrill. And we kept going and we powered up the hill. The next thing, we were literally there. We were at the entrance to the drive and... And out we get, and we were more shocked than we were excited that we were actually able to get as close as we did to what had only just taken place.
1: We looked at a photograph of the scene to see exactly where they got to, and it looks like they parked in a field right next to the lane where the body was. Really, it was... Quite a casual situation and the guards were very friendly and,
2: you know, my younger sister was sort of 18 and, you know, chatting very, very amicably with the guard, you know. But I mean, I think that's, a. it goes with the job when you're a guard in rural Ireland, you engage, in, I, mean, I mean, you engage in friendly manner,
1: possibly to deflect from the reality of what is going on. But she was also one of the few people in the area who'd been down this road before. She remembers a visit she made as a child to see friends one christmas evening and i remember thinking this must be the darkest place and it's so dark
2: you know that whole area and that little road driving it at night is really forbidding and i think the rest of the landscape is so wide open and characterized by you know the atlantic and the cliffs and and this is just really quiet it just seemed in its own little dark cocoon
1: While Sophie's body was still out on the laneway, before the experts had inspected it, before her family knew, and before the guards really had a grip on the case, Sophie's murder was a national headline. A press officer for the guards was on the 5 o'clock news, already fielding questions. Now, the body, you say, was found at 10 o'clock this morning. Is there any idea at this stage how long, roughly how long, this woman has been dead? Absolutely
3: not, no. We're, uh, again, that's one of the aspects that the the, the, the the pathologist will be looking at as to the actual length of time the body has been lying there, the, the cause of death, and, of course, formal identification. So we're still waiting for the arrival of the state pathologist, and indeed our uh, ...ballistics and forensic people here from Garda headquarters... ...to go down and examine the scene. And until such time as that happens... ...we will not be able to ex- establish exactly the circumstances. I'm Eugene Gilligan. I was a detective Garda in the garda Corner Technical Bureau... ...which is based in Garda headquarters in the Phoenix Park in Dublin.
1: Gilligan's team mobilised as soon as they got the call... ...but a motorway between Dublin and Cork... ...was still about 10 years off being built so they were on local roads through every town, hitting Christmas traffic all the way. They didn't get into Skull until 10.30 that night. And then
3: had to make inquiries
1: to get to the scene, get local uh,
3: police, local guardy, to bring us to the scene because we didn't know where it was. The police station was closed. We had no mobile phones.
1: Gilligan saw a telephone box, but there was a delay there too.
3: The telephone had been vandalised and I literally had to rewire the telephone within the box to make a phone call.
1: Gilligan finally reached the end of the laneway, some 13 hours after Sophie's body was discovered.
3: It's, it's, actually, it's actually pitch black, but the, the, the whole thing, it's pitch black. It was.
1: As his eyes adjusted, Gilligan could just make out the three houses on the hillside. A local guard pointed into the darkness where the body lay a few metres up the laneway. The scenes of crime photographer held up a high-watt camera light that cast a narrow band of light immediately ahead of them. Gilligan and the photographer approached the body at a crawl.
3: We're walking slowly. He's behind me. I look. If it's the ground I'm looking at, looking for footwear impressions, evidence that may look out of place, items that may look out of place, whereas you have, say, fresh cigarettes or... Something.
1: A few meters up the laneway, the plastic sheeting covering the body came into view. Gilligan inched up around the body and removed the sheeting. He still remembers what he saw.
3: I do. Absolutely. It's like a picture of where it was. You look and you go, oh, for sake. What? What's gone on? You look like this. I said, What's going on here? And then you go back out. Do right, my lads, stand back.
1: Official gear Fisher focus. Start in. He pointed to injuries he wanted photographed. He checked the temperature of the body. It was nearly freezing. Ireland State Pathologist Doctor Harbison still hadn't arrived, but Gilligan knew him well and had worked with him on many cases, He knew the body was now too cold to determine a time of death, and there was little they could do until daylight. We went back to the station, and I rang Dr
3: Harbinson to explain the scene to him because we had been informed that he wouldn't have been able to get down until the next morning. We, myself and my my colleagues, we saw it immediately as being totally unnecessary
1: to leave a body for the pathologist to come Pathologist Dr Harbison's instruction to Gilligan was to get the body to Cork City, where they could begin a postmortem as soon as he arrived in Cork the next morning. There was nothing to be got from Harbison visiting the scene and therefore no point in leaving the body out overnight. Gilligan relayed all this to the local officer in charge, but the local officer had other ideas.
3: So he said, no, I'd like the doctor to come to the scene. I said, I said sir, there's really no need to. I said, the doc can't do anything. Maybe you weren't listening to me. I've just said to you, I want Dr Harbison at scene. OK, sir, thank you. I understand the instruction.
1: He didn't argue, but he definitely made a note of the conversation.
3: I said every word that that guy's after telling me you've gone down here because I said they should go hit the fan down the road,
1: right? Gilligan says that he and Dr Harbison were seen as the experts and the local officers always deferred to them but not on this occasion. So until Harbison arrived, the body would stay out on the laneway.
3: We thought it was highly inappropriate to leave the body on the roadside for that length of time. It was somebody's relative, and it had to be treated. That body had to be treated with decorum.
4: Guards brought out flashlights to the crime scene and worked in shifts to watch over the body.
1: Guardian Scholar tonight preparing for a full-scale murder hunt over the Christmas period. That's likely to start after the state pathologist carries out a post-mortem early tomorrow morning on the body of the 30-year-old French woman. Darkness tonight accentuated the isolation of the area.
4: Several people we talked to remembered seeing that the lights were on at the Garda station that night. It stuck in people's minds because it was so unusual. Policing in West Cork, busting people for growing weed or for driving without insurance... ...could usually wait for daylight hours. Off-season, West Cork is quiet. Not much happens, and even less happens at night.
3: You know, it was so quiet, it was amazing. So yeah, it would have been possible to wander anywhere and not be seen.
1: You suddenly realise
2: how vulnerable you are. Previously, isolation is a security...
4: It's also, there's nowhere to run. There's no one to hear you. In West Cork, you didn't need to think about these kinds of things. Who might be wandering around late at night? How far you were from your closest neighbour? But then a woman was murdered, out in the open. And nobody heard. And nobody saw.
1: West Cork is an Audible original production, written and produced by Jennifer Ford and Sam Bungie. Produced and sound designed by Kristen Muller, Alex Trujano, Robin Wise and Paul Schneider. Our theme music was composed by Shani Avaram. Our recording engineer is Sean Moher. West Cork is edited by Mike Olof. Our fact checker is Christine Baird. And Jesse Baker and Eric Newsom are the executive producers.
4: This is Audible.
7: to find out if it's right for you.
0: Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra.